You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Several years ago, I um, saw the news about four teens here in Southern California that went on a five-week vandalism spree in their area. And by the time the five weeks was up, they had committed a total of 100 crimes in the five weeks. And what was... Um, a little bit sad but interesting was an interview on the part of one of the mothers of, of the teen. And this is what she said about her son. She said, my son is a, and you probably know what she said, what? A good kid. He's a good kid. Committed 100 crimes, but a good kid. He just got in the wrong crowd. Now, as a parent, I understand this response. I mean, it's really hard for any parent to think that there might be something wrong deep on the inside of their child that might drive this kind of behavior. It's easier, of course, to point to an external cause for the bad bad behavior, and it is partly true. Because if the, the source of that kind of behavior is external, well, then you change the environment, you change the external stimulus, and your child is suddenly better, suddenly okay. But it's not just parents who have this perspective on the wrong that occurs in this world. It's really increasingly the cultures of the modern world. Two weeks ago, the Orange County Register reported on the record rise in homicides this last year in our nation, and they identified the cause primarily as the pressure coming from COVID. Now, like that statement the mother made, this really kind of makes sense. I mean, bad friends can and do have a terrible impact on teens. And it is true that the rise And the pressure brought on by COVID has obviously brought out the worst in a lot of people. But while we keep trying to point to the cause of all the wrong that goes on in this world as something external, something environmental, God points primarily to the heart of each one of us and says, that's really what's driving this. That's where it's coming from. There's something going on in our hearts that is not good. One of the statements that God makes about this is in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 9 through 10. He says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? It's darker than we really know. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. So, yes, what happens to us, our environment, does have an impact on the wrong that we do. But according to God, it's nothing compared to what's happening in us that's driving the wrong that occurs in this world. What's happening inside the human heart is deceptive. It's it's tricky. And it's desperately wicked. Not just occasionally wicked, not just wicked as a hobby, but driven. Desperately wicked. In fact, it's so wicked that no one really knows just how bad it is. That is, no one, of course, except God. He is the one who searches our hearts and examines our hidden motives that drive us to do what we do. So while our world places the source of what's wrong out there somewhere, God says that the real problem is not out there, it's in here. We carry it in our hearts. Now, there was a time in our lives when what's going on inside of our hearts was much more obvious. We even have a name for that time in our life. We call it the temper tantrum. 
So let me show you a picture that we'll all recognize. This is a child in full tantrum mode. I thought the red hair kind of added a little bit of punch to this. But as adults, we are fully capable still of temper tantrums. In fact, here's a picture of the number one tennis player in the world having a temper tantrum. This was just recently. Now, again, I understand this because I've done this exact same thing with a racquetball racket. We are given to this kind of outburst. And the tantrum is not something that we grow out of. That's because what drives the tantrum comes from deep inside of our hearts. Now, we learn how to have more sophisticated tantrums, but they don't just go away on their own. Last week, if you're with us, we considered the, the five Hebrew words that God uses to identify the five basic patterns of life that we choose from. These are the five patterns, again, the easy way, the my way, the fun way, the glory way, and the harmful way. Now, we kind of mix and match these. I talked to some people after last Sunday thinking each one, they thought, oh, that's me. And then the next one, oh, no, that's me. And the, oh, no, that's me. So we, we do kind of mix and match these, but we tend to have one dominant one. If you want to know what your dominant way is, it's your go-to way when you're under pressure. That's your dominant one. Now, today, we're going to kind of look below the surface of this tree of these ways. We're going to look at the roots. We're going to look at the three Hebrew words that God uses to describe the tantrum that's raging in our hearts. And these are the roots, really, that grow into these five branches. Out of these three roots, we decide that one of these ways serves these three roots best for our liking, for our preference. And actually, some of these Hebrew words, two of these Hebrew words we're going to look at, are root words of two of the Hebrew words that describe the different ways that we looked at last week. So each of these words, I think, can be captured by something that our heart is saying. And that's where we're going to approach it this morning. Our hearts are saying three things, really. Three roots that are driving every one of our hearts. The first statement that our heart makes from deep inside is this. I want my way. I want my way. The Hebrew word for that is eveleth. It's the root of the my way fool that we talked about last week. It means literally the stubborn determination to have life on my terms, to have life my way. What is it that usually triggers the temper tantrum on the part of a child? It's when the child doesn't get their way. Whether it's a child or adult, though, Getting our way isn't just a preference. It's an obsession with us. And the reason is we want to be happy. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, after securing our survival, happiness is our primary pursuit, our primary obsession. And what that means is we all have a plan for how to be happy. We all have a happiness plan. It may be a simple one-step two-year-old kind of happiness plan where they may fixate on some food they want or some toy they want, or it may be a multi-year happiness plan that adults are capable of. But common to every happiness plan is the fact that we are absolutely convinced that we know best what will make us happy. 
And therefore, that's why we must get our way. Because if we don't get our way, then we don't get to be happy. And we are obsessed about being happy. Now, we come by this trait, this heart trait, honestly. We inherited it from our great-great, common great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had been placed in the happiest place on earth. Not Disneyland, but the Garden of Eden. The real happiest place on earth. And in that garden, every need they had was completely met. And beyond that, we are told they walked with God in that garden. God is the source of all happiness. But they decided that God was not enough and that they really needed just one more thing to be happy. Does that sound familiar? Just one more thing. And then the happiness cup would have been full. The problem, of course, was that God had forbidden that one thing that they decided would really make them happy. It was fruit from the only tree that God had forbidden, that God had said no to. And they ended up believing the lie that we all still tend to believe today. It's the lie that the enemy, in the form of the serpent, told them, and the enemy still tells this to us and whispers this in our ears today. Here's what he said in Genesis 3, 4 through 5. You will not surely die. You know, eating of this fruit is not going to have negative consequences, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the lie that the enemy is telling them? God is wrong about this. And what you feel about this is right. You're not going to have negative consequences. In fact, the opposite's going to happen. You're right. Your, your sense that what you really need and what's really going to bring pleasure to you is this fruit. You're right about that. In fact, if you do this, you will discover that what you think is best is the truth. You will discover that you are the only one that knows what's best for you. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be your own God. You'll be the one to decide what's going to make you happy and what's not going to make you happy. So now on this side of that decision, we, all, we are all born convinced of this, that we are like God, that we alone know best what is good and what is wrong for us, what will make us happy and what will not make us happy. We all think that our eyes are completely opened and that we cannot be tricked and that we can see what we need and what will make us happy. We are born convinced of this. Every one of us are born in this condition. So this Hebrew word is used in Proverbs 22, verse 15, where it says folly, the word is veleth here, is bound up in the heart of a child. This is from the beginning. We are all born with the stubborn, stubborn determination to get our own way. It's, it's wrapped up. The idea is that it's, it's like a knot that's tied up and cinched tight around our heart. We are born thinking that we know what's best. When we translate this word foolish, because 
it's not smart for us to think that we know what's best because we're not. I mean, just from the child's perspective, without parents, kids would run out into traffic. They don't know what's best. They would accept candy from strangers. They don't know what's best. Our kids would have eaten Fruit Loops nonstop if we'd let them. That's not smart. That's not good for them. But why is this I know best approach not good when we grow up and get smarter and are adults? It's because in many ways we still don't know what's best for us. Now we are smarter than we were when we were one and two. But we are never smarter than God. Our eyes are never fully opened. In fact, we can't even see one minute into the future. We definitely can't see eternity, the things that will ultimately last and make us happy for all of eternity. We can't see that far. So we, the, the fact is, we're not right. We don't know what's best. And if we get our own way, we will be miserable because we don't know what will really make us happy. Now, this, I want my way, can be summarized in the single word, selfish. We are all born naturally selfish. We're all born thinking that what we want is the most important thing and that everyone should get out of our way. Now, God's design is for parents to be the first responders on the scene to confront this common selfish heart condition. If you're a parent, this is job description number one. You are the first responders to intercept and challenge the selfishness of your children. That's your job. And so it goes on in this verse, verse 15 of Proverbs 22, to describe this. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Eveleth can be challenged and actually driven out of a child. How? The rod of discipline. Ooh, that sounds awful. I mean, the word discipline literally means boundaries. The first word a child learns is no. Because parents are teaching their children, no, we don't, we don't touch the stove. We don't put our fingers in light sockets. Because we don't live long if we do those kinds of things. So there are physical boundaries. And then as time goes on, they discover moral boundaries. You know, you don't hit your sister. You don't hit, hit, you don't hit mommy. You don't hit dad. No, no, they learn this. These are the boundaries of life. But then there's the rod, which are the consequences that come by crossing the boundaries, the pain that a child needs to experience to learn that these boundaries aren't just paper. They're real. It's less painful for a parent to bring pain into the life of a child than for the child to figure out by putting his finger in the light socket. That's the rod of discipline. Now, for me as a parent, I'll be honest, there was nothing I hated more than bringing consequences, pain, into the life of my children because I love them. And it feels unloving to bring pain into the life of someone you love so much. In fact, most parents now think this is not what you should do. It's not loving. But the opposite is true. Properly, lovingly done, this is the most loving gift you can give your child. 
The reason is because they, they're going to grow up to live in a world that God runs. And if you launch them into adulthood thinking that they run the world, that's a rough life. That's a harder life than it has to be. And we can learn that we don't run the world the hard way in, in our homes or the really hard way in real life. God deputizes parents to teach their children this before they have to learn it the hard way. You see, the pain of living a selfish life is far worse than the consequences that are brought to bear by a loving parent. So why the rod of discipline? Why not just the words of discipline? Well, as parents, we, we try this. And words actually are an important part of discipline. Our kids need to understand why this is a no. Now, when they're really young, you can't explain AC current running through a house to a child. No, it's just kind of, but as they get older, they need to understand why. They don't just need to have rules. They need to understand why this is good for them and why this is damaging for them. So words are an important part of discipline. But words all by themselves will never drive out this selfishness, this kind of folly. And that's because our kids, like us, are not primarily pursuing truth. What we are primarily pursuing is happiness. Truth is interesting. Happiness is what we're obsessed about. Feeling good, therefore, is our deepest goal. So what that means is when we feel bad, we do our deepest learning because we don't want to feel bad. We want to feel good. And when we feel bad, that's the moment where we stop and think, wait, this isn't working. What's wrong? What do I need to change? That's when we're listening. That's when we're learning. This is why I wish it wasn't true, but in this fallen world, pain is essential to growth. So the essential role of a parent is to prepare their children for the real world. And in the real world, they are not in charge. Their teacher is in charge. Their boss is in charge. The police are in charge. And these authorities don't submit to temper tantrums. And all of this authority exists because behind all of it is the fact that God is the one in charge. And God will not let us have our way because he knows it will lead to our misery. What do we call it when we let a child just have their own way? We just let their selfishness run the day. We call it spoiling the child, right? It's a very accurate description. And that's because Eveleth, Eveleth this, this selfishness, this stubborn determination to have my own way, if it's left to itself, it will rot a person. Another way of saying it, it's going to stink up the place. The child will grow up to stink up the place. They will grow to dislike themselves, and others will stay away. And as a result, they will not be happy long term. Right now, one of our grandchildren is, is, in, is in the throes of this battle. They are determined that they run the universe. They are convinced 
of this fact. They are determined to have their own way, and their parents are determined to not let them have their own way. So what that means is nobody's happy. The parents aren't happy about this. The child is certainly not happy about being confronted on this. And you can just tell when the battle is getting ready to start with this child. And whenever the parents sense this, they will look into this child's eyes and say, I love you, and you will not win. <laughs> they just keep repeating that. I love you, and you will not win. Why? Why do they say that? Because they're just on a big power trip? No, because that's what God says to us. And they are God's deputized representatives to their children. God says this to us all the time. I love you, and you will not win. He says this, again, not because he's on some big power trip. He says this because he's a loving God. And he knows that if we win, we may be happy in the short term, but we will be miserable in the long term. And so he loves us too much to let us settle for short-term happiness and just let us have our own way unchallenged. And by my experience, when God disciplines, it's much more painful than when parents do. This is why God brings short-term pain for long-term happiness. So again, parents are deputized by God to deliver this message to their children for about 18 years. I love you, and you will not win. Now sure, it would be much easier to let this child have their way. But this, if you're a parent, this is your most important mission. To drive folly, selfishness, far from your children so that they can find true happiness in this life and in the life to come. The next phrase, the next root, is described by this phrase. I deserve more. Halela is the Hebrew word for this. It means to exalt. This is also a root of a word that we looked at last week. So the first statement is, I want my way. And the second statement adds power to the first one, and I deserve it. I deserve more. So the next two Hebrew words, including this one, that God uses to translate the human tantrum, are found in the same verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3 says this, The hearts of people, moreover, because we're talking about what's in our hearts, are full of evil, and there is madness. This is this word, halela, in their hearts, while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Halela means to exalt. We sing this word to God, hallelujah. Now, as I said, we looked at a different form of this Hebrew word last week that describes the chosen strategy of the glory way. You know, praise be to me. This word points to the arrogance that drives this chosen strategy. It's translated in English, madness, because it's crazy to think hallelujah to yourself and decide that you are the exalted one. 
at that point, you've lost your mind. Now, not from the perspective of this world, not from the celebrity culture, that's what makes sense, but from God's perspective. If you've decided that you are the exalted one, God looks at you and says, you're crazy. Because you have just decided to take him on. And that's crazy. That never works. Now, the part of the temper tantrum that I think is most representative of this is the scream that often goes with the tantrum. Now, I, I've heard, I'd heard children scream in anger before I had children of my own. So I was well aware that the scream goes with the tantrum. But I had never understood the message behind the scream part of the tantrum until I had children. I was just aware of the volume of the scream. I didn't know that there was content behind the volume. But there is content. This is what the child is saying when they scream in anger. What they're saying, they're not saying this by words, they're just saying this through the scream. What they're saying is, drop whatever you're doing and come here now. That's what they're saying. I didn't sense that urgency until I had kids scream, then I realized, oh my goodness. I have just been summoned by a massive power, and I'm now awaiting orders. That's what the scream did. I was amazed at the kind of urgency. It didn't even matter what I was doing. All of a sudden, it didn't, nothing paled in comparison to the summons of the scream. Now, as adults, we don't do a lot of screaming. It just doesn't work as well as it did when we were two. But it's not because we've given up on the two-year-old notion that we deserve more than we're getting and that people should come help us. It's just that adult screaming is less effective, so we've become silent screamers. We can scream in all kinds of different ways. For example, I've done this with my wife whenever she wasn't being as attentive to me as I thought I deserved. So what I did is I went silent and sulky, knowing that eventually she'd ask me what? Is something wrong? Mission accomplished. <laughs> I had used my silence to summon her just like my kids used to use a scream. She had walked up to me like my servant and said, is there something wrong? The one word that describes the I deserve more part of the human tantrum is arrogant. It's just arrogant to think that people should come running or come asking what they can do to serve you. As if we're sitting on some throne in a great throne room and, and all of humanity is waiting to figure out what their orders are from us. It's just tremendous arrogance. It's madness. Because arrogance says that we are at the center that everyone and everything should just adjust to us. What this does is this elevates what we want, the first root, our selfishness, from just a simple desire to a demand. It's not just what we want. We deserve it. And therefore, this is a demand now. I don't know if you've noticed how often the word deserve is used in advertising. All the time. I'm not sure exactly where it started, but 
it seems like it started with McDonald's. I know this is the second week in a row I've talked about McDonald's, so maybe I'm obsessed. I don't know. But here it is. You deserve a break today, right? They're still using that one. I mean, that really resonates. You know what? I do deserve a break today. So I think I'm going to get, get up and go away. Where would I go? How about McDonald's? <laughs> but you see it everywhere now. You deserve the best headphones. LeBron should know, right? I mean, if you can put a round ball in a hole like he can, doesn't get any wiser than that. You deserve the best headphones. And you also deserve a vacation, at least Spain. <laughs> That'd be nice. Now, this you deserve it message strikes a chord in every heart, which is why you hear it all the time, because it actually sells more stuff. I was in the advertising business. We don't spend money unless it works. You tell people you deserve your product, and they will come buy it. Because when you use that word deserve, what happens, it strikes the chord deep in that root of our heart and it goes, yes, I do, in fact, deserve. So I better do that. So if selfishness can be driven out of a heart by training, by the parents, and even life itself, what can we do to drive arrogance out of our hearts? Well, I have some bad news. It can't be driven out. It says in this verse that this is in the hearts of people while they live. Are you alive? You look very much alive to me. This is in your heart. It's in my heart. This arrogance thing never leaves our sinful hearts. We must, therefore, choose against it every day and usually several times a day. What this is saying, in a sense, is we wake up every morning thinking that we deserve more than we do. And therefore, we should be at the center of our day when, in fact, we aren't. This arrogance is, is like a weed that just keeps growing and needs to keep being cut down to size. That brings us to the third statement behind the third root, and that is, I will hurt you. I will hurt you. The Hebrew word for this is the easiest one to remember, raw. It means to harm. So here's the three together. We are selfish in our hearts, all of us. Depending on our parenting, we are more or less selfish. We are arrogant, all of us. And we are willing to do damage to others. So let's show this sweet girl up on the picture again, it's a good thing that this child is small. If that heart was behind an adult face, you'd have good reason to run. Get out of the way. This face is, is a portrait, not just of a childish tantrum, but of what, again, resides in your heart and mind. Last week, we talked about the fact that some people have a pattern of harming others. Now, we may not have that pattern, but for all of us, if push comes to shove, if we're under enough pressure, we are willing to bring damage to someone who gets in our way. So, it says, verse 3 again, the hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. 
That's this word, raw. The Hebrew word sounds like what it means. Raw. I mean, just the willingness to harm others. You know, we think of evil as something, you know, that ISIS does. It's not true of us. But this says the hearts of people are full of evil. And we're people. So this is true of us. How is that possible? I mean, I honestly don't want to hurt anyone. You hear people say this all the time. I don't want to hurt anyone. And that's true. But what's also true, if you live with them, they will lash out. The truth is, I've said plenty of hurtful things to my wife. Why? Because I married her thinking, ah, here's the person I'm going to inflict harm on. That was not in my heart. But in every case where I've said something hurtful to her, it started with my own selfishness. I wanted something. Then it was bolstered by my arrogance. You know what? I don't just want this. I deserve this. And then either by accident or for good reasons, she just didn't do or say what I wanted her to. And what spewed out of my heart were words that cut and hurt. Now, if I'm willing to hurt the woman I love who's been so good to me, I shudder to think what I might be capable of under enough sustained pressure. This is in our hearts. We don't intend to hurt others, but all of us want what we want bad enough, and we think we deserve it enough, so that if someone messes with us long enough, we will <clears throat> bring about revenge. They will pay. So here's the summary. We are selfish. I want what I want. We are arrogant. I deserve it. And we are damaging. I don't want to, but if you don't get out of my way, I will hurt you. This makes life very sad. S-A-D. If you want to remember these, selfish, arrogant, damaging, sad. These are the three sources of every relationship problem because these are anti-others. If it's about what I want and what I deserve and what I'm willing to do to get it, there's no room left for you. Either you get on board, get on with the program, which is my program, or you get out of the way. So the solution then is we just need to stop being selfish, arrogant, and damaging. Okay, so do that. Good luck. These three are deep. Selfishness is bound up in the heart, in our hearts from birth. If our parents haven't diligently worked to untie that knot, we got a, depending on how old you are, 50, 60, 70, 80, year, I've, I've seen nine-year-old balls of yarn that are just, I don't know how you'd ever untie that knot, selfishness. And then arrogance and the willingness to hurt, well, that stays with us for life. That's always there. This is why God offers to give us a new heart. Not a new feeling, but a new power. A new set of roots to counter these three, to counter the arrogance, the selfishness, and the hurtfulness. This is the only solution to the deep problems of this world. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, we read this. God says, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ written hundreds of years before his birth. Jesus came to earth to pay for the sins that these three roots drive and to give us a way to become different, to change us on the inside. So if we accept Jesus, we accept his forgiveness, and we decide that he's going to be the one on the throne, he's going to be our Lord, we follow him, then God's spirit comes to live in us. He gives us a new heart. We get a new set of desires to compete, compete with these big three. And in the place of selfishness, God helps us to learn how to love, to actually serve people, not try to get them to serve us. And in the place of arrogance, God begins to grow humility, which practically means we are willing to put the needs of others above our own and help them. And in place of the ongoing cycle of hurt that has been done to us and we do to others, Jesus teaches us to forgive as he has forgiven us. And with this new heart in us, we now have a fighting chance to grow something different, to change. Now, this is a live heart transplant. Surgery is still underway. What that means is we still got these old roots until we die. But if you decide to follow Jesus, you got something new. And every day we get to decide which one we're going to feed. Now, if you're in a growth group this week, these are groups that meet during the week to discuss this message. On the inside of the listening guide, there's some additional verses that we just didn't have time to include in the message this week. So go ahead and take some time to look through those verses. Uh, prepare for your growth groups uh, and get ready for the discussions. Even if you're not in a growth group and you want to think more about this, these verses and questions are designed to help you go a little deeper and kind of think more deeply about what we've talked about this morning. I would encourage you to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we never like bad news. And that's why we tend to resist the notion that our hearts are what you say they are. We often look around us and everyone looks like they're not this bad. And sure, there are things around the world that are this bad. But if we were to live with each other in the same home, we would see this stuff. We would see the truth. And so we thank you, first of all, for the price that you paid Jesus to forgive us and to put your, your spirit in us together with this new heart. I pray that you would help us to grow new roots to replace these old roots that drive so much wrong. We ask for help, and we thank you for the help that you've given. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.